0: It's a privilege to be sitting down this afternoon with our next guest, Mr Richard Shepherd. Richard is one of the nation's most experienced executives. His career expands across the fields of banking, finance, property, entertainment and infrastructure, wherein he has played an instrumental role in the success of both public and private enterprise. His current positions include as chair for over six years, and non-executive director for over 10 years of Dexas Property Group, one of the country's largest property institutions. Richard is also a non-executive director of Star Entertainment Group, Australia's leading integrated resort, hospitality and gaming company, as well as a non-executive director of Snowy Hydro Limited. In his previous positions, Richard spent over 36 years at Macquarie Bank, wherein he rose to become Chief Executive Officer during the period 2007, until late 2011, as well as Deputy Managing Director of Macquarie Group Limited from the period 1996 to 2011. During his time at Macquarie, he worked closely with fellow heavyweights Bill Moss AO, Alan Moss AO, Tony Berg AM and Nicholas Moore, amongst others. Richard, pleasure having you as part of our interview series. I want to start with the domestic economy. You've been involved in financial markets for most of your career. What's your reading on the state of the Australian economy? Well, obviously better than expected
1: uh, having gone through the pandemic. And we've seen this week the the government's budget, which is a very stimulatory budget, So I think the the growth outlook for the economy is not bad for the short term. What I worry about, um, I suppose, is the emergence of inflation, which would then lead to higher interest rates. And in one sense, how is all of this largesse from the government going to be paid for eventually?
0: Just on the budget, was handed down on Tuesday evening. Any thoughts around it? I mean, it was a a pretty stimulus-heavy sort of budget. Um, Tell us where you think the the opportunities the budget presents are and, and the challenges are. Well, the budget as you
1: say is stimulatory and it's it's good for growth in the economy at least for the short term the big question as i said before is how is it going to be paid for in the long term and i think that's going to be a discussion that the political parties will have to address whether it's before the next election or after i don't know but uh, sooner or later the bill will come and personally i think
0: it's going to come from the emergence of inflation and, and higher interest rates there's been significant discussion about Australia's relationship with China and the headwinds being experienced from both a trade and governmental perspective. What's your evaluation of the trade war and where do you think we're headed?
1: Well, I think the deterioration of our relationship with China, with whom we were very good friends just a few years ago, is, is, is extremely disappointing. And to some extent, you'd, you'd like to see the, the language from both sides in a sense tone down a, a bit and, and stabilise. Now, that doesn't look like it's in prospect for the, for the near future. And, of course, it's not something that I'm close to. It's, it's a political issue. Uh, I, I think we've just got to hope for the best.
0: Reflecting on the past 12 months, how would you evaluate Australia's response to both the health and economic crises?
1: Pluses and minuses. Clearly, the outcome in terms of uh, Australia being in a unique position in relation to the disease. The COVID-19 disease is, is an outstanding effort, and we're all in the Australian community, the better for it. From a business point of of view, I think some of us are somewhat disappointed at the, I guess, the um, tendency for particularly state governments to to close borders at the drop of a hat. Uh, I think some of those things from a business point of view could have been managed better, but overall, you'd have to give the Australian governments a, a nine out of 10 their overall management of the pandemic and the, and the associated recovery in the economy
0: compared to most other places in the world, compared to just about everywhere in the world. In contrast to many of the publicly listed property companies, Texas's share price remained relatively stable in February and March of last year. I think it was around $8.50 to $8.70 thereabouts. A year on it now sits, and I haven't seen it. Today, but it now sits between I think $10, 20 to $10, 30 or 40 at the upper end. Talk to me about the challenges of last year and how the group managed to perform so strongly despite the uncertainty.
1: Well, the share price had been around $13 and then dropped to about 850, which uh, I, th- I thought was an overreaction, but the whole market overreacted and then has, has recovered strongly. The challenges last year, well people weren't coming to work, as as you know we had complete lockdowns, Uh, you walk through the centre of Sydney and even worse in the the centre of Melbourne, it was a ghost town, people weren't coming to the office. And in the case of Dexas, uh, um, a lot of our small tenants, uh, the the cafes and the sandwich shops in the basement of of our office buildings, Dexas is the biggest owner of office buildings in Australia, those people really couldn't pay their rent, so we not not only commercially wanted to give them rent relief, but of course there, were, there was government um, intervention in the rental market. So we saw a drop off of rent, we saw a drop off of the share price, we saw a drop off in occupancy and, While all that's now recovering, there is, of course, a a, a big discussion going on about the future of office and and how that's going to relate to work from home, as everybody's got used to using the technology to uh, work from home. Now, I think office will recover, but it's going to be a somewhat different and more flexible working arrangement going forward.
0: One of the most significant developments Texas is involved in is 80 Collins Street, and that has got to be, I think, the benchmark of how a mixed-use commercial office precinct looks moving forward. Talk to me about the success of the precinct of the project and how is it viewed internally?
1: Well it's certainly viewed internally as a a, a great addition to the DEX's portfolio. We bought the building a year or two ago probably two years ago now from um, another developer. So the development was half done when we bought it and it was completed under under our, own, our ownership. From a DEXA's point of view, we felt we were underweight Melbourne. Um, now we've since bought a number of properties along Collins Street, so we really think we're in a good position in Melbourne, which prior to the pandemic was the fastest growing city in Australia. And uh, so we're very pleased with that acquisition. We're very pleased with, it was there last week. It's, uh, and funnily enough Macquarie have, have, have taken some office space in there and uh, I was looking at their tenancy. So we're very pleased with how the buildings come up, the, the, the retail tenancies that are going into the basement. Uh, and we also own the property across the road, which is the old
0: reserve bank building, which is a,
1: a future development site.
0: You've now been Chair of DEXUS for six years. The business owns at last count $17 billion worth of Australian property and has a further $24 billion of assets under management. Talk to me about how the business has grown over the time that you've been involved.
1: A lot of the assets were in our balance sheet when I first joined the board about um, 10 years ago and we strategically made a decision to grow the funds, the funds management business. So we, we own our buildings both on our balance sheet and we manage them for, for other investors through funds. And our strategy has been to be a leader in the office sector and to be the preferred partner of choice for, for capital partners who want to be involved but have somebody else manage their portfolio. So during that period, the, the funds under management have grown um, probably from well, as you say, $40
0: billion in total. So it's it's more than double what it was, you know, back eight or ten years ago. The commercial property sector is undoubtedly one of the nation's most competitive given the weight of capital, both in Australia and increasingly internationally from places like the US, from the Asia Pacific and that sort of thing. How does a business like Dexas ensure that it's not overpaying for assets?
1: Well, we have a management team which is extremely experienced and which, which really knows backwards the... the um, the relative values of properties in, in the central business districts and the other places that, that we operate. So I've got a great deal of faith in the management, uh, uh, but we have independent valuers and, and, and we know the market. And of course we bu- both buy and, and sell properties. So I think that's one of our areas of expertise and that, that's a key attribute of being in this, a leader in this business.
0: Changing sectors, let's discuss your involvement with Star Entertainment Group, which has been in the news a lot this week the environment for businesses with casino assets has changed somewhat over the past three years particularly in relation to junket operators and and that sort of thing. How has Star Entertainment Group as a business navigated the uncertainty in the casino inquiries that are plaguing other businesses?
1: Uh, 90% of the business is, is domestic business so the, the the effect of the pandemic and the restraint, or the restrictions that have been placed on the junket business have had some impact on a, on a small percentage of the business. But really the big impact on the casino business has been the pandemic. We, we were effectively shut down for you know, many months last year. STAR has a workforce of over 10,000 people and 90% of those people we had to stand down and, and they, they then operated on JobKeeper. For a substantial period of time. Now that's recovering strongly now, um, but it was an extremely difficult period, not only for casinos, but anybody in the travel, entertainment, and tourist industries, airlines, airports, casinos, etc.
0: So Star is competing against Blackstone for, to acquire or, or to get a hold of the Crown Group. What can you tell me about that? What synergies do you see, generally speaking?
1: Well, I'm not a, as a non executive director of STAR, I'm not a spokesman for the organisation. I leave that to the chairman and managing director, Matt Beckier. But uh, what I can say, I mean, we we believe it's a very compelling proposal to put the two groups together. It would result in substantial synergies and a, and a, a really outstanding portfolio of properties around Australia. We, it would be the leading. Um, gaming and entertainment group, uh, probably in the, in the southern hemisphere. And we think that that should be attractive to, to, and a great value proposition for the shareholders of both
0: groups. Let's talk about your background. As I understand it, your first professional role was at the age of only 16 when you worked as a clerk at the Reserve Bank of Australia. How did you get that role at, at that age?
1: Well, at that age, you're really not sure what you're doing. So uh, I, I read the advertisements in the paper and I made an application to the Reserve Bank. And uh, they offered me, a, a, well, not only a job, but, but more importantly for me, assistance to go to university. So at the, there I was at the age of 16, you know, working in the city, earning a little bit of money and, uh, and then trudging up to um, uh, the University of Sydney for, for night school. And in, in the days, the University of Sydney
0: still provided night courses and you enrolled in an economics and accounting degree at the University of Sydney, graduating with first-class honours. Where did your interest in finance originate from?
1: I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my career, but my feeling was that if you understood economics and accounting, it would open the doors to a whole range of potential opportunities. Uh, And, you know, I was interested in business and investing and and, uh,
0: so on, so that seemed to be a natural course for me to go. Following graduation, you worked, I think, as an economic advisor to the leader of the federal opposition. What was that period like? Uh, that was a
1: two-year period and that, the, the leader of the opposition at that time was Billy Snedden, and uh, the Prime Minister was Gough Whitlam, was after the Labor Party won the 1972 election. Uh, for me it was an education what were the lessons. One lesson was I probably decided politics wasn't a career for me, but I met a lot
0: of people. I got to understand how the political world worked and and that was, it's been useful ever since. And then in June 1975, you joined Hill Samuel, which later became Macquarie Group. At that time, the business was a a subsidiary of the British institution Hill Samuel and Co Ltd. Take me through what role you were doing at Hill Samuel.
1: Initially, I was in uh, what was I think the Corporate Services division, which was effectively providing advice to companies on takeovers and investments and, and things like that. And I did that for some time, and then I actually moved to, to the Melbourne office for most of the 1980s, continued that uh, type of thing. And subsequent to that, I then became involved in quite a range of the different Macquarie businesses uh, in, ending up, as you said, as,
0: uh, as, as being managing director of the bank. And in 1977, it's reported that you met Alan Moss for the first time. Alan, of course, later became CEO. Talk to me about how your relationship with Alan came about and what sort of leader he became at Macquarie.
1: Oh, well, Alan joined the bank about the same time that I did. We were both pretty junior. And we learned from some some of the really great people who, who developed the Hill Samuel and then the Macquarie business, people like David Clark, Mark Johnson, Tony Berg, Taught, I guess, both of us a lot. And then, as I say, I went to Melbourne and Alan stayed in Sydney, so we geographically separated for a while until the late 1980s. I came back to Sydney, and then we, during the period that Alan then became managing director and I was the deputy managing gr- director of the group, we clearly worked together very
0: closely. So we had a long working relationship together. The Macquarie business grew substantially during the 1980s and 1990s. What were the main drivers of this growth and how did the business go about expanding, but expanding in the right way?
1: Well, you're certainly right about the growth. Uh, When I joined Macquarie, there were a grand total of about 30 people in in the Old Hill Samuel group. And the the day I walked out 36 years later, there were 15,000 people in about 30 odd countries around the world. So there was certainly a lot of growth. But along that journey, it felt very much like building it brick by brick and underpinning a lot of that, which was to, I guess, a very key part of Macquarie's development through the, some of the economic downturns that happened in the early 1990s and the global financial crisis was a, a very heavy emphasis on risk management and understanding what the risks were, what the downside was. Uh, so we made plenty of mistakes along the way, but, but fortunately, they the were it, it, mistakes um, where we were able to manage the cost.
0: So given you spent 36 years at Macquarie Bank, you would have seen so many different economic cycles, recessions. Tell me, how how did you go about learning from each one, or at least how did you go about sort of putting those risk parameters in in place?
1: The general approach to risk management was to to look very hard at the the decisions that we were making and the investments that we were making and to then construct a worst-case scenario if it went wrong. And to be able to have enough liquidity, enough balance sheet capacity that you you could do that. So when you were growing as fast as Macquarie was growing, there were a lot of very good decisions, but there were also some things that didn't come off. And you just had to make sure that the things that came off, that did not come off, were were manageable. But at the end of
0: the day, all the the good things far outweighed the, the mistakes that we made. You rose to become Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Macquarie Bank and Deputy Managing Director of Macquarie Group, during which time you were there when the GFC occurred. How did you go about positioning the business during this time and and what lessons did it teach you?
1: Well, when when we were approaching the GFC, which which really was triggered in late late 2008 when um, Lehman Brothers collapsed and, and that Led to a complete collapse of confidence in banking systems worldwide and a complete drying up of finance. Prior to that period, times were pretty buoyant um, and uh, investment markets had been rising strongly. And there was a boom in the housing markets, partly fed by the US mortgage markets. In line with our risk management, I mean, our risk policy at that time provided that we had to have a year's liquidity so that if we as a bank couldn't raise any money anywhere in the world for a period of 12 months, we could continue to survive. And while that rolls off the tongue easily, when you're sort of three months into the global financial crisis and not being able to raise any money anywhere in the world, um, nine months to go, it started to concentrate the mind. Of course, then what happened uh, was that some of the European governments started guaranteeing their banks and, and under the Rudd government at the time, they introduced a guarantee for the Australian banks, so that really was instrumental in assisting the liquidity of the Australian banking system.
0: Given that you were a leader during that time, what are the fundamentals to becoming or at least employing effective leadership?
1: First of all, I think you've got to have a vision, you've got to oversee a, a, a culture and a lot of the problems we've seen in corporate Australia is where the culture has not been quite right, particularly in, in risk management. So. People like Alan and myself, uh, subsequently Nicholas Moore, the other leaders of Macquarie, spent a lot of time communicating around the organisation, our general approach to things, our approach to risk management, our approach to to growth, our bias towards trying things, provided we understood um, what would happen if if things didn't go quite right. So I think, one, you've got to oversee a good culture, and then you've got to be clear about and and communicate effectively the objectives so that you've got the whole team with you.
0: Reflecting on your 36 years at Macquarie Bank, what are your proudest moments or achievements? Well, I think undoubtedly the way that
1: Macquarie came from very small and humble beginnings to... Top 20 now a top 10 company on the stock exchange with with major international operations. One of the biggest fund managers in the world, the, the biggest infrastructure manager of, in the in the world, uh, wide diversity of of, of operations, a you know, market leader in, in a whole range of uh, industries, and it's been very successful. It's been profitable without exception in, in every year that. Uh, right back from those first years where, where it made less than half a million dollars of profit per annum. It's now the latest profit, I think, is $3 billion per annum. Mind you, I haven't been there for 10 years or so, so I can't really claim
0: much credit for that. But You mentioned risk a couple of times. What are the keys, do you think, to managing risk? Like, How, how do you go about the process of actually evaluating risk?
1: Well, there's a, there's a whole range of aspects of risk. And, and to some extent, the casino industry that I'm, I'm now involved in as a, as a board director is somewhat similar to banking. It's got it's, um, lots of money going around the company. There's um, a, a heavy regulatory element. There's lots of compliance that, that, uh, that needs to be done. So, so risk is about being on top of all of those things, credit risk, compliance risk, um, evaluating alternative scenarios, and that doesn't mean you don't take risks, it just means you really need to understand the risks that, that you're taking and you have to have the governance pr- procedures in place to deal with all of that.
0: Macquarie is one of Australia's greatest corporate success stories. What's the formula that makes it so successful?
1: I think it was the culture and, and the approach to doing things and that was reinforced, I think, by a remuneration system that really provided alignment between the shareholders who benefited greatly from macquarie's expansion and the people who were producing or, or managing and doing the deal doing in the in the business so it was effectively a profit share arrangement so it was complete alignment and there was also very much a a bias to to trying new things and and, uh, and starting new businesses from from the ground up and then the other key element was just Hiring and retaining good people with all the things
0: that uh, are involved in doing that. The banking sector is another industry that has experienced significant government investigation and intervention through recent Royal Commissions and recent regulations. How would you evaluate the strength of Australia's global domestic banking sector?
1: I mean, I'd have to say the Royal Commission was a bit of a mixed bag. There was a bit of an overreaction towards restraining credit, um, and, and then the government since reversed. That, but the Australian banking system at the moment—the Australian banking system's been strong um, right through the, the crises. There's been some hiccups more recently in areas like anti-money laundering for some of the, the major banks. But at the end of the day, the, I mean, Australia has very strong banks, a strong financial system, and it's effective in in channeling credit um, to where it's
0: needed. One final one about Macquarie: Is there any leader? or any colleague of yours that you worked with that was a real standout? I remember Bill Moss mentioned Tony Berg was one of the smartest people that he ever met.
1: Oh, Look, there were lots of standouts. Uh, the, the, the various leaders that the bank had, uh, David Clark, Mark Johnson, Tony Berg, Alan Moss, who you've mentioned, then subsequently Nicola, and, and now Shamara, who I've worked with a, a lot during my time. there. They're all outstanding leaders. But Macquarie was, he wasn't only the leaders, um, Macquarie is a, a partnership of many people who, who, who are in, in running the businesses, so Macquarie has many leaders apart from the, the, the sort of people that I've mentioned. Uh- you know, I'd have to say, you know, while I was managing parts of the bank, there were, there were just dozens and dozens of people who were much brighter and better financial engineers than I ever was.
0: You're probably sick of, of talking and, and being asked about Macquarie over the past 10 years, so let's talk about some of your current roles, in particular uh, your role at, at Dexis. Reviewing the state of the current market, which sectors do you see are offering the best opportunities for continued growth of the business?
1: Well, the new emerging area has been industrial, um, and and that's a hot market at the moment. But another area that that we have started to invest money in, and we have a fund which has just gone past a billion dollars, is in health assets. Uh, so we identified that as a, an area of, of potential growth about three or four years ago, have since been investing in it. The, the fund's now up and running. It's got a diversity of investors. It's got an increasing diversity of, of properties. So we think that's a very interesting sector. But I, th- I think we'll see DEX as, with a more diversified property base or sector base as, as the next few
0: years roll on. Are there any asset classes that you're avoiding?
1: Well, we're not in residential. Um, and, and, you know, some other REITs are, like Stockland and, and, and Mervac. It's not an area that we've targeted. Um, our strategy has been the leader in office and, and commercial property. So it's not a character of avoiding, it's, it's really sticking at what, you, what you're good at. And then we don't, don't really get into smaller asset classes. We're not involved in, you know, leisure assets, uh, caravan parks. Um, and we're not an expert in hotels, that that type of sector, we, we leave that to the to the star entertainments of this world.
0: And I know you mentioned you're not in residential. Would you take a look at something like build to rent? Oh, we always look at things, but it's not on our
1: um,
0: agenda at the moment. How would you evaluate the weighting of the current portfolio and is it likely to change in the future?
1: Well, the current portfolio of Dexus is funds on the balance sheet and that we manage is approximately $40 billion. It's heavily weighted towards... Uh, towards office, but it's, it's got significant um, retail portfolio uh, in the managed funds. There's health assets, as I've mentioned, and we also have um, a multi-billion dollar portfolio of, of uh, industrial assets. So it's a good balance, um, and we see all those sectors as, as you know ripe for further growth.
0: Just on the office assets, how are you finding occupancy, say, between Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane at the moment?
1: Occupancy across the portfolio is in, in excess of 95%. Melbourne has been hit harder than the pandemic than other cities because they had a longer lockdown so I was in Melbourne the other day and it just seemed a lot quieter than Sydney but people are now coming back to the office at, at a faster rate than we would have judged likely 6 months ago I think the big question is is what work is going to look like in the in the future now we we think and very confident there'll be a, the, the role of office will continue to be very important, but we'll see more flexibility with people working from home you know, at the odd day each week. And, and we'll adapt our portfolio to that. Um, we have, we'll have, increase the number of, of offices where you can rent meeting rooms you know, by the hour or the half day, that, that type of thing to, to fit in with that increased flexibility from our clients.
0: I think some of the other institutions have reported that effective rents have been reduced by 10 to 15%. Is that what you're seeing? Uh,
1: rents have held up, but there's, there's higher incentives. So, so the, the bottom
0: line is that the rents are softer than they would have been pre-pandemic. As I mentioned, you're also involved with Star Entertainment Group, a business which has been heavily in the news. How is the business performing given current, the current environment?
1: Uh, the business is performing well now, the properties in Queensland performing better than, than the one in Sydney up until recently simply because Sydney has been subject to greater restrictions than, than, than in Queensland. The important thing for STAR is that uh, we've, we've invested very heavily in the properties uh, both here in Sydney then in, in Brisbane where we're building the $3 billion. Queens Wharf um, property, and we uh, have heavily invested in our Gold Coast property, so Brisbane and, and uh, Gold Coast trading very well, Sydney now recovering from the, from the lockdowns that it's been subject to.
0: I know you mentioned that the majority, I think, of, of the businesses' revenue traditionally has come from local yeah. rather than international. Does that mean that the closure of international borders hasn't had a major impact, obviously not getting the tourist dollar, but from a VIP gambling dollar that wouldn't have wouldn't have changed
1: much. Well, the VIP business has, has diminished, but it's a small part of the, the business. You know, a, a good part of the business to have, and we hope it'll come back. But, uh, and it'll be a bit changed because the junkets won't be such a significant part of the business going forward.
0: What have been the keys for Star Entertainment over recent years in building a sustainable business?
1: Oh, I think the key story has been the investment that we've made in our, in our properties and we will have just a really outstanding portfolio of, of properties. Um, once Queen's Wharf has completed uh, in a couple of years, we're doing putting an enormous investment into the Gold Coast and we've made very, very significant improvements to the Sydney property at, at uh, Piermont.
0: As a director of the business for several years now, what have you learned from the role?
1: Well, as I said before, in some ways, it's a bit like banking that that's highly regulated, um, there, there's large amounts of money flowing through the system. Uh, there's an enormous amount of compliance involved. But also like banking, you've got to deliver a great product to, to your clients if you want to keep growing growing the business. So there's those sorts of similarities. I, I, I enjoy being involved in the business um, because it's, it's providing, you know, leisure services to, to the clients. People, some parts of the population enjoy gaming, other parts of the population enjoy you know, our restaurants and our um, entertainment. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting business to be involved in.
0: Has there been any impact from, say, online gambling on the bottom line, do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, there's some impact, but, but not, not material. I think people actually still enjoy going to a physical location and intermingling and, and having fun in, in a really nice atmosphere.
0: Let's chat about a couple of your other directorships, starting with Snowy Hydro. Under Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, Snowy Hydro 2.0 was launched, I think, in early about February March 2017. Criticism has been made since then of the cost of the expansion and the time frame of it. How is it progressing from your view?
1: It's progressing well. The, the, it's a five billion dollar project, and it's 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 effectively on time and on schedule. The the uh, But it's also a very challenging engineering project Uh, i was down there a couple of weeks ago the the tunnel boring machines which are unbelievably impressive machines are are in place and about to start drilling tunnels through the mountain and we're talking 11 meters diameter tunnels so they're big tunnels and then they'll join into a power station which is a kilometer under the ground and the size of two or three football fields so it's it's a it's a It's a challenging engineering project, but it's also a very important project for the the Australian energy system because it's the key to making renewable energies work because uh, effectively the project is designed to to pump electricity into the system when the renewables are not operating because the wind's not blowing or or the um, sun's not shining on the solar panels.
0: What role do you think Snowy 2.0 will have in Australia's energy mix moving forward and in, in terms of a percentage?
1: Well, it's already the fourth largest generator in Australia. It'll provide a significant percentage of the, of the system, but more importantly, it'll re- it, it, it comes into its own when the renewables are not operating and you need to replace the renewables with, with energy. For example, in, in periods of very hot weather, uh, or, or very cold weather when, when you need to supplement the existing energy system.
0: Now, being a, a former banker and being involved in the energy sector and, and many other sectors, do you have a view on, it would seem that one side of politics is heavily weighted towards renewables and the others potentially heavily still weighted towards traditional coal and, and gas and that sort of thing. What's your view on Australia's energy mix and how do you think it needs to change over the next 10 to 20 years?
1: Well, it is changing very rapidly as we speak, Um, and and the renewable energy is making very fast and and, um, continuing inroads into the energy system, and we will see the coal-fired power stations ease out of the system, and and that'll happen regardless of which political party uh, is is in in power. So these are trends that that are entrenched now into into the system. So what you need, to, as I said, to supplement the, uh, the renewable energy system is you need effectively batteries to, to, to generate when, when the renewables can't generate. And the snowy scheme will be the, the giant battery of the system. Effectively, that's what it's going
0: to be. Away from your business activities, you've also been a director and treasurer of the Bradman Foundation for the past 15 years. Let me ask how your involvement in this came about and what sort of activities are involved in, in those roles?
1: Well, I was part, partly involved because I live most of my time in Barrel in New South Wales, where the Bradman Museum is, and because I was um, an average sort of uh, you know, amateur cricketer <laughs> and, were, like most of us, are interested in the game, and uh, like most Australians, uh, uh, very continue to be very interested in cricket. Uh, I never met Don Bradman, but uh, we all, all know what he achieved. And when you're around Barrel, and you walk past the Bradman Oval where he, where he grew up. Uh, He was clearly a remarkable Australian so that's really why I've I've been involved and uh, I'd recommend you or anybody else go and have a look at the Bradbury Museum. I really do commend it.
0: I'll do that. My second final question is bitcoins, do you have a view on bitcoins or cryptocurrency? I do have a view and that is to say I
1: I don't invest in things I don't understand and I really find it very hard to understand bitcoin. it's speculative, uh, but people have made a lot of money from it, uh, but it's, it's, it's not for me as an investment. Final question,
0: where do you see the future of Australia? Oh,
1: Australia's been the lucky country, I suppose, with our resources, with our response to um, the pandemic, with the, with it being one of the highest standards of living in the world, uh, so you know, let's, let's hope that that continues and let's hope that um, we, get, we open up to the world because f- everything from foreign investment to immigration to uh, tourism has, has been very important to Australia and uh, uh, it, it's gonna be important, important that that all resumes again. But Australia should have a, you'd think Australia's got a pretty good future, but it's, uh, uh, it's gonna be over to probably people your age to make that happen rather than people my age.
0: Well, Richard Shepherd, one of uh, the countries, one of Australia's most experienced businessmen, thanks so much for the opportunity to be able to share your insights. Thank you, Rob.